This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 19th, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, we start with journalist Andrew Curry. He's going to talk with me about inheriting trauma. How might things that happen in your lifetime, stress, starvation, things like that, affect not only the next generation, but the one after? Scientists are trying to figure it out. And I talk with Thomas Russell about his research into making permanent magnets out of ferromagnetic liquids. Usually we think of magnets as pretty hard, heavy things, but these are pliable magnetic materials that may come in handy for things like making soft robots. Now we have Andrew Curry. He's a journalist based in Berlin, and this week he wrote on inherited trauma. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Okay, so this is about epigenetics. It's been around a long time, but it's kind of morphing in its definition. Can you give us the latest on that? Different people mean different things when they they talk about epigenetics, but the, the basic concept is there are ways in which organisms inherit traits that are maybe not genetic. So we have DNA, the strict genetic code, but increasingly scientists are finding other ways in which traits are passed down through generations and they're trying to figure out what the exact mechanisms are. And in some organisms, it's really easy. And the more complicated the organism, the trickier it is to figure out how these things are passed on outside of the genetic code. Mm -hmm. So for example, some of the epigenetic mechanisms might involve modifications to DNA, or it might be a different set of molecules altogether that are being inherited through the cells that make up the offspring. Yeah. So so it's all modifications to DNA in that there are lots of different kinds of proteins in the cell that help when the DNA is telling the cell what proteins to make, how to develop. And there are different ways that these small proteins can signal the cell to read more or less off of the genetic code, or it can turn off genes, so to speak, so that certain traits aren't passed on or certain traits are passed on in amplified ways. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not something that's in the the DNA itself. It's more things that affect how the cell reads the DNA. Right. At the very moment that the cell first divides, you know, that's one of millions of subsequent divisions. Mm -hmm. And if you have a tiny impact at the very beginning, it can have a massive 
consequence down the line. Let's talk about when epigenetics, this different form of inheritance, first got linked to the idea of trauma. What are some of the early examples of those links? People started looking at how the environment change in diet, exposure to extreme colds, or exposure to high level of chemicals could affect what was inherited. And then probably about 15, 20 years ago, some researchers started looking or noticing other effects during experiments. And, and one researcher in particular who I spoke with, Isabel Mansui, she's at the University of Zurich and ETH Zurich, created a mouse model because she wanted to study borderline personality disorder. And so she was traumatizing baby mice by separating them from their mother at unpredictable intervals. And then she noticed that the offspring of those baby mice often had the same behavioral symptoms of trauma that the parents did. And sometimes those behavioral symptoms went on for several generations. So the idea here is that it's not just a physical like deprivation of food or exposure to a lot of cold. It's there's something about the psychology or, you know, this emotional states of the mice that are being passed down. The idea is that the stress of trauma, the stress of being separated from from your parents, the stress of traumatic childhood, you could be with your parents, but your parent could be neglectful. Those levels of stress cause chemical changes in your body that then affect how your DNA is encoded in red. And that those changes can be so powerful, that they're passed on even to your offspring that didn't directly experience the trauma. Right. So this researcher that you mentioned, she has looked at this for generations and generations of mice. She has some experiments where she's gone out five generations and she still sees behavior in the offspring of traumatized mice that she doesn't see in control mice. Mm -hmm. And that's even when she does a separation, but then like the children are, the children of the children haven't been exposed to a separation from a parent. This is kind of the crux of the, the question that's, that was a challenge for her in terms of the experimental design. And it's been one of the main criticisms when people look at humans. It's really hard to separate what is epigenetic trauma, what is sort of biologically transmitted, and what is just the stress of living with a parent that has been traumatized. Right, because your parents are, that are part of your environment. So you, these can consider environmental effects. Exactly. So how she, the way she controlled for that is she only studied the males. So she would traumatize male mice and then breed them with females, but take the males out. But the females, the mothers of the subsequent generations hadn't been traumatized. So there was no bad parenting, so to speak. Hmm. And yet she still found differences in the mouse behavior. So this is all behavior. So you can, you know, judge based on that, that something is being inherited, but the biological mechanism is, is, still, is still pretty far away from being understood. In mice and in other organisms, they've also found changes in sperm and blood and other tissues of things called small non-coding RNAs, which mm -hmm. are these things that help the body read DNA. And this small non-coding RNA in a traumatized mouse, or they've even looked at traumatized people, mm -hmm. is different in specific ways than in non-traumatized people. Okay, so there is something. And those, those are passed down? Subsequent generations, yeah, they see changes in the RNAs later as well. Mm -hmm. The big question is, how does it get from, for example, the blood of the parent to the sperm of the child and later then to the brain of the child, Wow! let alone the child's child. Yeah. And that sort of 
that whole middle bit is what is still really unclear. Let's turn to the human here for a minute. One of the first places this was talked about was with respect to the Holocaust. So can you talk about what what the research has shown with respect to Holocaust survivors? A few years ago, a researcher named Rachel Yehuda looked at the children of Holocaust survivors and found that they had higher levels of depression, but also lower levels of specific stress hormones and different kinds of epigenetic markers called DNA methylation than people whose parents had been born in the U.S. uh, from sort of similar ages and cohorts and argued that this could be evidence of epigenetic trauma. But that study was criticized at the time for the reasons that, that I mentioned earlier, that you know a lot of people said, well, it makes sense intuitively that if your parents survived the Holocaust, they might behave differently at home. That might be stressful in a different way. And so that isn't solid enough evidence of this biological mechanism that they found in mice. There is an ongoing project that you talked about with uh, children in an orphanage. How are they looking at that situation and asking questions about epigenetic inheritance? It's really hard in humans to do ethical experiments over multiple generations. So basically what they're doing right now is looking at humans who have been traumatized to see if they have changes in these epigenetic marks and then using those to design mouse studies to understand how that might be carried across multiple generations. And in the Pakistan example... This is the orphanage. This is the orphanage in Pakistan. Yeah. So a researcher who's part of Isabel Mansouri's lab is working with orphans in Pakistan whose fathers have died and they were forcibly separated from their mothers because their mothers weren't able to earn enough money to support them. And they're put in orphanages which they argue is fairly close to their mouse model. That they're separated from the mother as children, and they see different levels of these RNA in these kids' blood. And they're using those kids as sort of a starting point to then design better mouse experiments to understand how that might be transmitted through different generations. But to do a human experiment, you would have to look at those kids' kids and follow for multiple generations. And so for a whole range of reasons, it's extremely difficult to controlled intervention experiments in humans. Right. We should point out that the children in the orphanage are, there's an intention from the people taking care of them to make sure that they're not traumatized. Yeah. I mean, this is a situation that already happened. This was not, they didn't separate them from their mothers for the purpose of the experiment, of course. And they're being given, you know, great care. They go to the same schools. This is actually another interesting part of the experiment. They go to the same schools as local kids who still live with their parents. Right. So they're also looking at the local kids who still live with their parents to see if there are differences. And it's voluntary These kids get good care in the orphanages, but there's still something about this experience that they went through Mm -hmm. that is really difficult um, and seems to have biological impacts. I want to ask you what it means and what we should do about it, but I feel like that's a really big question. You know, no, like... it's it's a great question, um, and I, I think one of the most hopeful things to come out of the story for me was again something that seems sort of intuitive, but has been lost a lot in the discussion of epigenetics because I think a lot of people hear this idea that 
oh, you know, my, my grandparents were traumatized and therefore I have this unavoidable legacy of pain. Right. But there have been some early experiments, again, in mice, where if you intervene with basically sort of happy cages, they call them enriched environments, you can reverse this mm-hmm. biological process. Oh, yeah, we actually had, I think we had a segment on happiness in, in mice and rats and how giving them things to do and making them comfortable in their environment can, yeah, can change the way experiments turn out. Yeah. And so one of the arguments that several of the researchers made is rather than looking at this as a sort of a a stigma and a mark, we should maybe, you know, if we can identify these things, use them to identify people who will benefit from therapy, or Mm -hmm. maybe we should just, and this is where it's sort of intuitive, maybe we should just give all children enriched environments. Yeah. Yeah. And that this is not an unavoidable burden, but something that we can look at as reversible and that we should be looking at it as reversible. And that's something that we should be working towards. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you. Andrew Curry is a journalist based in Berlin. You can find a link to his feature at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stay tuned for an interview with Thomas Russell about making soft, pliable, yet permanent magnets. You might have seen a ferrofluid dancing to the beat in a video on YouTube. It's this cool, shiny-looking liquid that reacts to magnetic fields. It can form into different shapes. Often you'll see it with dancing spikes. But when the magnets are turned off, the shapes are lost. Now, a group of researchers writing This Week in Science have figured out a unique way to keep a ferrofluid magnetic, even when the external magnets are turned off. Thomas Russell is here to tell us about it. Hi, Tom. Hi, Sarah. So you make this distinction between a ferrofluid and a ferromagnetic fluid. How are they different? So the ferromagnetic liquid that we've come up with is basically a ferrofluid, which has nanoparticles, magnetizable nanoparticles floating around in a carrier liquid. Ferrofluids, you place a magnetic field on the fluid and there was a moment imparted. You take the field away and it goes back, uh, the moment is lost. These materials, you put a field on, and you take the magnet away, and it stays. So you have a permanent moment that's imparted to the liquid. Okay. Unlike normal paramagnetic fluids, these are the ones that turn off when the magnets turn off. This one stays magnetized, even when the external magnet is removed. So what is this material made of, and how did you imbue it with this characteristic? So the particles we use are iron oxide particles that are dispersed in water, and they have a carboxylic acid functionalization on the surface. They interact with ligands that are in an oil phase that have an amine functionalization. They form what are called nanoparticle surfactants. They jam at the interface, and that basically locks them in at the interface. And that really is what gives rise to this entire phenomenon, is just the jamming of these particles at the interface. These two, these two things you mentioned, the carboxyl and the amine, are those interacting? Are they forming bonds with each other? Or are they giving you know, what they're connected to a preference for the kind of liquid that they want to be in, water versus oil? The carboxylic acid is solubilized in water. The amine is on a polymer, which is oil-soluble. They electrostatically interact at the interface, hydrogen bond. 
they form what basically are nanoparticle surfactant. So there's multiple ligands attaching to each of the particles. And they increase the binding energy of the particles to the interface. Mm -hmm. Without them, if you shape, change the shape, the system tries to go back to a sphere, and it will. So you have to increase the binding energy to avoid the compressive force forcing these particles off the interface so it reverts to a sphere. Here they jam, and they can keep whatever shape you wish. One more definition. This one is, what is jamming in this context? A jam, you know, consider traffic at 5 o'clock at night. Cars, lots of cars there, they're not moving. So that's what a jamming is. You apply a field and each of the particles respond and their moment uh, is in the direction of the applied field, but they're locked in. Okay, so if they were in a fluid, they might move, but because they're jammed, they behave more like a solid magnet? Correct. So in a ferrofluid, the moments are aligned. You take the field away, it's in a fluid and it goes away. Here they're basically jammed and they're locked in space. When you look at a picture of this, like the figures in your paper, you see little spheres, little lima bean looking things. Can you describe why this looks the way it does? The sphere is this, that's the equilibrium shape of any liquid. So you have this shell of these gem particles, but the interior is liquid. How do you change the shape? You can change the shape with the shear field, electric field. You can squeeze it. You can do any of, uh, you can use a 3D printer and I can print structures as opposed to just having little droplets. A microfluidic injector will do it as well. Can you touch it with your hands? <laughs> I'm certain you could. We can make these awfully big if you want. We're not, we're not limited in, in size, big wise. We're trying to go to small size. That's the more important for us. So it's possible you, you could make a really big squishy ball of water with like a magnetic surface. Think of a ripe fruit. That's yeah. what it's like. <laughs> so you have, a, you have a shell and the inside is squishy. That's probably what it would feel like. Besides making a really cool toy, what are some of the applications for this kind of soft, squishy magnet? Well, think of it. We have these particles that are dispersed in a liquid. We can do water and oil. We also can do water and water. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I can take these shapes that can contain things and I can direct them and move them around with an external magnetic field. So I can deliver things in a liquid from one point to another point that has potential biological uh, applications. So I don't want to push that too strongly because we haven't worked with biological fluids. We can make little robots that are these sort of squishy type robots where you can have magnetic arms and feet. And so these could potentially move and grab things. Uh, and that would be done all in a liquid state. Hmm. We make all liquid systems, reaction systems uh, by 3D printing. And we can actually use these magnetic, little magnetic cylinders as stirring bars. In, huh. in, in <laughs> we, we can also generate these structures. They don't have to be uniform with magnetic particles everywhere. We can put magnetic particles at different places. Mm -hmm. So you magnetically actuate one part and, and not the other. And so I can get, you know, I can get a bar and I can make the bar bend by having magnetic components on the two ends. I can get that to move in and bend in. So if you think about making grabbers, you can make magnetic grabbers, etc. One thing you talk about in your paper, you talk about using pH to turn this, some of these characteristics on and off. How does that work? 
you know, with hydrogen bonding, of course, that's going to be pH dependent. So if we change the pH, let's say we generate cylindrical structures and we change the pH, we can have the cylinder now change its shape because we're weakening the bonding of the particles at the interface. So the particles, you know, there's a compressive force applied by the jam. Mm -hmm. And compressive force is higher than the binding energy you'll start throwing particles off the interface. And what will happen then is that the shape starts to change because now the surface area is changing. Okay, so I can take a cylinder and bring it back to a sphere. Hmm. This is very cool. So using magnets, electricity, pH, you can reshape this material on the fly and make it move around. Basically, yeah. Mm -hmm. Very cool. I mean, we can 3D print helices and we make those conductive that's a solenoid so we can get a solenoid that takes these little magnetic bars and pushes them through so we're exploring different possibilities i think the other thing that's important is that in my opinion represent a new material yeah all right all liquid but it's shaped Hmm. and here the real stunning part is that every single particle contributes to the magnetic moment whether they're jammed at the interface or floating around in the interior. We don't understand that yet. That's what I find to be the really baffling and intriguing thing that we really have to try and understand. All right, Tom. Thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, that sounds great. Thomas Russell is a professor in the Polymer Science and Engineering Department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a visiting faculty scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. You can find a link to his science paper at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in each episode. To place an ad on the podcast, contact midroll.com. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.